Hey future doctors, thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. Shock is a sentiment that I often feel whenever I encounter test questions that I don't know. And I think you have a good idea of the kind of question stems I'm talking about. I'm talking the 100-word vignettes, all these lab values listed that I don't know what to make of, all these up and down arrows with various columns and the answer choices. Funny enough, these types of questions are often asking about physiologic shock. So my goal today is to actually review the different types of shock, the types of physiologic shock, so that you don't go into a state of psychological shock. We'll talk about the different types of shock, we'll talk about what causes them, we'll talk about how they present, and then we're going to spend the bulk of the time working through the different parameters that you're going to be tested on. Now, this might seem overwhelming at first, and I assure you that it's not intended to be. I don't want you guys to focus on memorizing the parameters that are associated with each type of shock. You know, you don't want to sit there and draw out a table with arrows and continue to memorize them. What I want you to do is focus on understanding how we're reasoning through these problems so that when test day comes, you'll be able to tackle these questions with no distress at all. Before we go into the various types of shock, I want to start by asking you guys, what is shock? This is something I don't think I understood for a very long time, so that's why I'm going to take the time to explain it. Shock is a state when tissues are basically underperfused, okay? And it's basically, usually it's due to a failure of the circulation. So either for whatever reason, the tissues aren't getting enough blood or the circulation is just unable to meet the needs of the tissue, okay? So the effects of shock are initially reversible, but they can very quickly become irreversible. And that leads to a state of end organ failure and tissue death. So how does this manifest? Well, it's important for us to think about how it manifests in the question, right? So on the test, the findings that indicate end organ damage are often going to be given to you in the vignette. So in the question stem, they might describe a patient who has severe confusion, altered mental status. That's reflective of brain damage. If they write out lab values, the lab values are going to point to organ failure. So liver damage is going to be reflected by elevated transaminases. The AST and ALT are going to be high. Kidney failure is going to be reflected by elevated BUN to creatinine ratio. There might be a low urine output. And in the blood, this is kind of reflective of, you know, systemic tissue death because uh, the blood is going to show elevated lactate. And think about why that happens. We said that shock is because the tissues are not getting enough blood. What is the blood giving the tissues? It's giving them oxygen, right? So the tissues aren't getting enough oxygen, but they still need energy. So they're going to undergo non-aerobic respiration and they're going to undergo lactic acid fermentation. So usually they're going to give you an elevated lactate. They might just give you a low pH and you have to interpret that this patient is in metabolic acidosis due to lactic acidosis. Now, how are you going to be tested on this? That 100-question vignette with all the various lab values, all those scary-looking arrows listed under different parameters, 
You have to figure out when you get to this question that the patient is in shock. You have to figure out what kind of shock the patient is in. And then you have to know a little bit about that type of shock to figure out what happens to those various physiologic parameters. This can sound really scary, and believe me, to me it was really scary. But if you understand the physiology, it's going to be very easy. And hey, we've already done the first step. We already went through the lab values that we need to look for, right? Lactic acidosis and other signs of end organ failure. So now the next step is just figuring out what type of shock. So what are the different types of shock? I'm looking for four main categories. Uh, these are kind of generally recognized as the four different classes of shock. So these categories are distributive shock, cardiogenic shock, hypovolemic shock, and obstructive shock. And we're going to go over all the details about each of these types of shocks, so don't worry. But let's talk about what you need to know for each one. So for each type of shock, there's a few main parameters that you need to know, and I'm really just going to boil it down to three. These are cardiac output, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and systemic vascular resistance. Systemic vascular resistance is a pretty easy one to figure out. It's basically how the arterioles are re reacting to the hemodynamic state of the, of the body, right? Systemic vascular resistance is essentially, are the arterioles constricted or not? The next one is cardiac output. Sometimes they'll ask this as cardiac index. Cardiac index is measured in liters per minute per meter squared, okay? So liters per minute is what cardiac output is, and then meters squared is relating to the, cardi the cardiac output to the body surface area. So I want to um, take a moment here to just tell you guys in general, if you ever see a measure or some kind of value that you don't understand what it's asking, look at the units and you can probably figure out what you need to know. Okay, that aside, we talked about SVR, we talked about cardiac output, the last parameter you probably need to know is pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. So this is something that's measured using a Swan-Gans catheter. Um, it's used as an approximation of left atrial pressure. Sometimes instead of this, they might ask you the left ventricular end diastolic pressure, and it's basically the same idea. They're all assessing the volume status, and it's a way of assessing what's happening before the left ventricle in terms of the cardiac anatomy. Okay. So now let's get to the heart of things. What happens in each different type of shock? Let's start with distributive shock because this might be one of the more complicated ones, so we'll get that over with first. So what is distributive shock? Basically, some insult causes massive vasodilation and you basically go into vasodilatory shock. Okay, Everything is vasodilated and so nothing is getting enough blood. What could cause such massive vasodilation through the body? The first thing that comes to mind is probably sepsis, right? Septic shock, and that happens whenever you have some sort of infection. You're probably bacteremic, and it follows that there's a massive release of cytokines in response to that infection, and you just get systemic vasodilation. But sometimes you can also get systemic vasodilation in response to some kind of insult, but it's without an infectious agent. What's that called? 
So I'm thinking of SIRS or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. I don't know if you guys know the criteria of SIRS. Anybody? So the mnemonic is um, three T's with white sugar. That kind of helps me remember what goes on in the SIRS response. So the first two T's are easy, tachycardia, tachypnea, the patient's struggling. The last two T's, I'm sorry, the last two parameters, I remember that they can be high or low. So the last T stands for temperature, and then the white sugar is talking about the white blood cell count. So temperature and white blood cell count can be high or low, and then heart rate and respiratory rate are always going to be high. This is where I want to tell you that whenever you read a question stem, the vitals are vital. It's really easy to kind of just skip over those numbers when you're trying to go through board questions fast, but you always want to look at them to figure out how sick the patient is. Okay, and what I'm trying to tell you is that if a patient is in SIRS or if they're in any kind of shock, the vitals are always going to be askew and you should be alerted to that just by looking at them. So what non-infectious conditions could cause SIRS? It could be caused by kind of any other process that causes inflammation. So pancreatitis is a big one. Burns can cause this. Significant trauma such as crush injury could cause this, or even air or fat emboli. Now, what's another big cause of distributive shock? Think about maybe a boy gets stung by a bee. Anaphylactic shock, right? That also causes systemic vasodilation because of the massive release of histamines and leukotrienes. So you get vasodilation everywhere. Anaphylactic shock is another type of distributive shock. And then finally, this one's a little bit different, but it still kind of fits under that category of distributive shock. What if someone gets a head or spinal cord injury? It results in sympathetic denervation. This would be neurogenic shock, okay? And that sort of wraps up the major causes of distributive shock, at least the most common ones that would show up on the exam. So what is the commonality between all these different causes of distributive shock? Massive vasodilation, remember? So we want to use that, what we know about what causes distributive shock, to go through the different parameters that I said you guys would be tested on. So let's start with systemic vascular resistance because I think this is the easiest one. What's going to happen to SVR if there's massive vasodilation? It's going to be decreased, right? Vasodilation, so less resistance. Now, what's going to happen to the cardiac output or the cardiac index? Well, what's the heart going to do in response to massive vasodilation? It's going to increase the cardiac output, right? The body is asking for more blood, and so the heart's trying its best to meet the body's needs. If you're more of an equation person, think about maintaining the stroke volume in a tachycardic patient. And cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. So it's going to increase. I just want to point out the exception to this rule, which is neurogenic shock. In neurogenic shock, the cardiac output is actually going to be decreased. And why is that? Well, remember, we had sympathetic nerve injury, and so the heart is not getting stimulated to pump. And then, but just remember, in other cases, the cardiac output is usually going to increase. So septic shock, anaphylactic shock, cardiac output increases. So then we have the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. And this one I always have to think about a little bit extra. And unfortunately, it's a little hazy in the case of 
uh, distributive shock because it can either be decreased or it can be normal. It just sort of depends. But this isn't the one that they're going to trip you up on. Okay, just ha keep in mind that it can be decreased or normal. Let's move on now to cardiogenic shock. What happens in cardiogenic shock? So essentially, it's a failure of the cardiac pump, right? This can happen for various reasons. It can happen after a heart attack. It can happen in someone who's in heart failure. It can happen as a result of an arrhythmia. Or it can just be a mechanical defect, often an acute mechanical defect in the valve. Bottom line, the pump is not working. So let's go through the parameters. What's going to happen to cardiac output? Well, the pump is not working, right? So what's going to happen? It decreases. What happens to pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? This one, it makes sense to me if I kind of think of it as the pump is not working, so blood isn't going forward, so that causes it to kind of back up in the heart. So left atrial pressure and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure are actually going to increase. And then what happens to systemic vascular resistance? Well, the heart isn't pumping out blood, so you're probably hypotensive. So SVR is going to increase as a response, right? Right. If you understand that, that's pretty much it for cardiogenic shock. Hypovolemic shock. So this one is pretty much all in the name, right? The key is volume loss. Look for a patient that's bleeding. Severe trauma with multiple fractures. They may be bleeding in the GI tract. They may, be, they may have ruptured their aorta. Um, so these are all hemorrhagic causes. There can also be non-hemorrhagic causes of hypovolemic shock, um, anything that would cause you to lose a lot of intravascular fluid. So if your fluid is being depleted because of massive diarrhea or let's say a heat stroke or your third spacing, uh, usually on exams though, they're going to ask about hypovolemic shock in the hemorrhagic context. So parameters... Well, cardiac, let's go to cardiac output. What's going to happen to cardiac output if you're losing hella blood? It's going to be decreased, right? Because you don't have blood to pump out. What about pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? Well, we just said you're losing hella blood, so it's going to be decreased as well. And then systemic vascular resistance. So we've lost all this blood, so we're probably hypotensive, and so... The arterioles are going to constrict and SVR is going to be increased to try and compensate for that. That's easy enough, I think. How about obstructive shock? Obstructive shock is a little tougher to understand why it happens, I think. Just think of it as an extra cardiac cause of pump failure. So it's not the heart itself that isn't working. It's something external that's causing the heart to not work. So this could be either something pressing on the heart such as a tension pneumothorax, constrictive pericarditis, or cardiac tamponade, something squeezing on the heart, or it could be something that's obstructing blood from getting into the heart in the first place. So this could be pulmonary embolism or very severe pulmonary artery hypertension. Let's talk through the parameters for obstructive shock. What would happen to cardiac output? Well, we did say that it's an extra cardiac cause of pump failure, right? So cardiac output is going to be decreased. Think of it as something is obstructing the cardiac output. What's going to happen to pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? Well, this, again, it kind of depends on where the obstruction is. So it could be increased or decreased, but this is not the point they're going to trick you on. 
What's going to happen to the systemic vascular resistance? Again, you have decreased CO, so you're probably hypotensive, and so SVR is going to be increased. And that really covers all the different types of shock. I realize that was a lot, but I want to reiterate that you don't need to memorize these charts. In every review book, they're going to have a chart with these arrows, and it's a great reference. But whenever you get to these questions, I really think that if you just understand the logic behind what we discussed, you can figure it out. And then it'll become an integral part of you, and you don't have to visualize a chart in your head. The hardest part in these questions is probably just going to be figuring out what type of shock the patient is in. Okay, so remember that 100-word vignette I mentioned? At this point, it's kind of just a matter of practicing how to dissect those vignettes. So we'll go through a few examples here. And we kind of already did one earlier. Remember I asked you about a boy getting stung by a bee? Yeah, if that is the precedent for somebody being in shock, they're going to be in anaphylactic shock, right? Shoot him with epinephrine. Now, what if a, let's say, 68-year-old woman who's three days post-op from some sort of abdominal surgery and she has a Foley catheter in place, then a few days later she just starts meeting SIRS criteria? What's the diagnosis there? I'm thinking septic shock. She probably has a UTI from her Foley in place. Watch out for those because they kind of just slip those in and you, you might not even notice them. But Foley catheters are a risk for UTI. Also, if somebody has symptoms of UTI, like lower abdominal pain, um, maybe they have some costovertebral angle tenderness, that's a precedent for septic shock from UTI. Also, I don't know if you guys picked up on this already, but distributive shock is the only shock that has decreased SVR, right? Because everything is vasodilating. And so it's also the only shock that can have increased cardiac output. The only exception to this rule in distributive shock is the subclassification of neurogenic shock. But otherwise, septic shock, anaphylactic shock, they're unique in that they have increased cardiac output and decreased systemic vascular resistance. The next one, let's say a man falls off his roof while he's doing some repairs. He has a visible arm fracture, which is immediately stabilized, but he's still crazy hypotensive. What might be the diagnosis here? So I'm going for hypovolemic shock in someone who's had a significant trauma. The important point here is that he might have a pelvic fracture. These can often bleed internally, and so you need to look for them, and you need to stabilize them. Last one. Let's say someone gets stabbed in the shoulder area, let's say on the right side. He has decreased breath sounds on the right. He has hyper-resonance to percussion. I'll give you this too. If you were to do a chest x-ray, it would show their trachea deviating to the left. What does he have? I'm going for obstructive shock. I was describing the findings in a tension pneumothorax, and so that would really squeeze on the heart from the outside and cause extra cardiac pump failure. And that really brings us to the end. Um, I hope it made sense to you guys. Really quickly, I'd just like to run through how I recommend approaching these questions just one more time to kind of sum it all together. So you'll know right away when you see that arrow chart and they're asking about cardiac output, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, SVR. When you see those parameters and those arrows, you'll know. If there's more parameters than the three that we went over, don't be scared, okay? You know how to think your way through these questions. So look at what they're asking you. If you don't know what that parameter is, look at the units that they're measured in, and you can figure it out. I have confidence. 
You'll also know from the vitals that they're in shock, right? Remember the three T's with white sugar? And you'll know from the lab values. Elevated lactate is key. And so then it's just a matter of reading the question stem to figure out what type of shock. And once you know what caused it, you guys already know how to reason your way through the physiology. So I'd like to thank you guys for your time. I hope this was useful. I hope it made sense to you. If you have any questions, as always, visit our website and please post in the comments under this episode. When you get to the question on shock, there's going to be no need to cry out SOS. You're going to know exactly how to tackle the question from what you learned on Spoonful of Sugar. 